they're not going to do the 73 questions that we did in the uh, the last one. But that was fun, though. I was thinking about, I was wondering if we were going to do something similar to that. But uh, Well, I don't know if you uh, are up to it, but I have uh, a book to give to one of your listeners if um, we could, like, raffle that off or you know if you choose um somebody to gift that that would be great with me one of your listeners so email or ig uh at the vietnamese podcast on instagram or uh email me at the vietnamese podcast at gmail.com and we will um pick a a, a winner we have a, a copy of the of nothing follows and that's why we're here today yes and another thing, Ken, is that uh, the Viet Book Fest or book, Viet Book Fair is happening tomorrow in Santa Ana. And if you are, uh, if you'd like to pick it up in person, the winner, then um, please come and I will sign it as well. So, yeah, I look forward to to being there tomorrow. I'm bringing my kids there tomorrow. I'm going to release this episode right now, right after we're done here. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll be down there tomorrow. Okay. Okay, so you you wrote a wonderful book of poetry called Nothing Follows. And yes. I have, we've just talked about this, but I've traditionally been very afraid of poetry. And the reason I'm afraid of it is because I think of like different forms of poetry in English. And when you read it, sometimes you have, it takes so much to comprehend what and decipher what the poet is saying. And it's so complicated. And so, I, I, you know, when I picked up your book, I was like, oh, my God, I was, I was quivering in my pants. I was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. And But when I read it, I, I connected uh, instantly to uh, your, your father's um, character, the way you've depicted your father. Uh, I connected with him so much. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just wanted to share that. And if you could talk a little bit about um, putting the book together the collection yeah. together. Yeah, no, thanks for that. Um, and so I, I understand your hesitation around poetry. I think it has this reputation for being very um, cerebral and um, it's intimidating. When I talk to students, they're, uh, they don't have many uh, entry points into poetry because, you know, it's been hard grained, ingrained in them that um, poetry has to be has to elicit like deep philosophical thoughts, but I'm not all about that. And so if um, one reads uh, my poems, what I like to do is provide a story and a history of my father um, and my family, very specifically through images. So it's not exactly hard to access, in my opinion, because what um, begins and ends each poem for me is the image. Um, and But even so, I, I make it sound um, easy, but it was actually a 25-year process, which means I started when I was younger, um, much younger. And then up until today, it, it was hard for me to let it go. And um, I don't think I'm alone in saying that it becomes a labor of love and effort. And, and you know, at, because, you know, you are an artist yourself um, or you speak to a lot of artists. It's basically your heart, 
that you're giving out and you're putting out in the world. So given that, it took me a long time to also let it go. Um, and speaking of my father, um, because it's about him, um, while I um, try to make very loving um, portraits of who he was, and I wanted to document the military person that he was and um, exalt his accomplishments. Um, at the same time, there have been, uh, there was a lot of uh, abuse um, that I found inside the home. It was both emotional and physical. So I wanted to create a really complex person um, through um, things like a flag or through his military fatigues and the way in which he cooked for me. And so little things like that. Um, and so, again, what took me so long to let it go was um, the fact that he is now, now 93 years old. Um, he is in, um, he has a little bit of dementia and senility, which means he will never read the work. Um, so on the one hand, that gave me some liberation to feel as though I could tell his story. And then uh, on the other hand, I still feel like I've betrayed him. And um, being a traitor to the family means writing out our worst secrets and, um, you know, putting flesh into some of the nightmarish um, things that I bore witness to. How much truth, and that's a subjective word, but I'm just trying to get as close to this idea of your truth is in the poems. Mm -hmm. I think so. So, you know, with any uh, creative work, even though it's autobiographical, there still seems to um, be a lot of imagination and creativity in the putting together of these images and memories. And memories themselves are not perfect. It, we don't recall them um, in their clarity. So given that kind of poetic license, I think, I was able to draw from my experiences and embellish some ideas or some images that may or may not have happened. Um, but for the most part, it is um, what I witnessed, what I felt at the, at the moments that it happened, um, and in reflection. Um, by the end of the book, for example, it's a more mature voice that I have assembled and it's in three different parts. The first part is about, um, is a very childlike perspective. The second, you know, going through adolescence um, and rebellion. And the third um, section is a more self-reflective, more adult or uh, emotionally mature point of view. And I wanted those different experiences and different perspectives to come together to see to talk about again my family's history and the way in which like the vietnam war had really followed us from vietnam to guam to pennsylvania to finally california and how um the intergenerational trauma um, still lives on and so that's why i took that kind of um trajectory of time and the title nothing follows is 
basically the start of uh, the journey here in the U.S. for you, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Okay. So when we first came to the U.S., we were um, um, we were at Fort Indian Town Gap, and so that's a very familiar refugee story. I think coming from Guam, we were sponsored by a Catholic congregation to go from Fort Indian Town Gap to um, a small um, steel mining town called Butler in Pennsylvania. So when we arrived, and it was going through my archive of uh, documents that I um, held on to uh, for you know most of my life, that I saw in the documents that all of our paperwork, and we have so much paperwork, um, the government would send us letters to say, we've we've read this we we know about your appeals for family reunification we know um that your that um your father uh, was in the military um but we still have to do all these medical and criminal checks on him um so just reams of paper and i realized that almost at every point um there's this phrase, nothing follows on these state documents, as if to say, uh, we don't need any more details. Um, and I want to, so the book gives lie to the fact that uh, nothing follows, because in fact, everything follows in the wake of war. And so the, uh, of course, the title is ironic. Um, and I have a t uh, poem in the at the end of the book called Nothing Follows in order to talk about, um, to, to finalize this um, portrait of my father in his older years. Um, and and I, I want to talk about, again, all the things that have followed us from Vietnam to the U.S., you know, going back to that question about truth, uh, I'm up, I'm obsessed with it as I read the book because uh, I'm kind of gauging like the reality of all the things that I experience against your, you know, what you're describing and what I'm describing is very similar in, and and it's so crystal clear the way you you you, the efficiency of your words brings and draws in my emotions because of of me reading something so similar, and that's why. I really harp on the you know the question of how, how much of it is true. Um, so thank you for for kind of explaining that. And I think for me that's part of the reason why poetry is so difficult for somebody like me. When I'm reading it, it's like reading something that's autobiographical from you, and trying to relay like, oh my god, this is similar to me, but it's just much more uh, descriptive and. Uh, where does the truth and so that's why it's difficult for me to kind of like concentrate and focus on 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 understanding and following the story because it's it can go so many different ways right well so i i understand um this need to under uh, to um you know get to the the kernel of truth in, in the in a piece of literature um and then also in terms of this particular poem poetry book it it's a mixing of hybrid it's a mixing of hybrid genres which means I intermix the memoir uh, and mm. I graft it onto the poetry um, or poetic form this is all to say that 
again, in crafting this self that you see, that I see in this book, it has to do with putting together uh, different shards or fragments of memories, different fragments of emotions in order to recreate this this world uh, for the reader who will, who I will lead through um, uh, through words and through spaces. So with poetry, you know, the form is very particular in that I use spaces a lot and I'm very mindful of the ways that it actually looks on the page and how, and how many and where the lines end and begins and capitals, um, the use of Vietnamese words, the use of Vietnamese cuss words is important and the layering of different languages because this is what um, I know to be true, uh, especially for my childhood. So, so this is all to say that I'm not sure if asking for truth for, from from this particular book is going to be fruitful because um, I am the youngest of nine children. And so what I try to do is document as accurately as possible um, these experiences, but they're still filtered through my own subjectivity, through my own perspective and the world's um, the world that I um, was positioned in, um, again, from childhood to adulthood. So it shifts this truth or experiences. Um, so I, but I understand the impulse to try to figure out what's true and what's not. But I'm just not sure if then, if one does that with my book, that, you know, it will be a failure because I can't, I can't myself know exactly what's truthful. So um, a famous, one of my famous, um, one of my favorite writers, Maxine Hong Kingston in Woman Warrior um, has this line where she says, to you, the Chinese American person, and I'm paraphrasing, um, how do you separate out what you see in the movies and uh, what your experiences are or what you see in uh, on a uh, in popular culture and who you are and i don't know if i if i'm even able if i'm a good enough writer to be able to separate out um these overlapping memories and overlapping um ideas about how i grew up what kind of um daughter i was going to be uh, what kind of person um I saw myself as through, again, through all these different um, um, parts of my life. That's such a honest answer. Um, th thank you. And it makes me, when you talked about the whole, um, this idea of, of a movie, uh, that was my next question. Um, the imagery and the sort of sequencing feels like shorts. And I'm not trying to like, like uh, uh, create some relative uh, because you're a film professor at USC. But uh, as I'm reading it, I couldn't help but think about it being vignettes, mm -hmm. compressed vignettes right. in words and the visualization of the words to my brain. I saw everything as uh, short films. Yes. Um, you awesome got this, way. Ken. Literary analysis. Look at you. Um, 
just a quick note, my internet is un- a little unstable, so the connection's going in and out, hopefully. Yeah, um, it's, it's fine on my end, on my okay. recording end, yep. Yes, so um, I begin with the image, I end with the image, and what that means is that um, for me, it it works very cinematically mm-hmm. because um, it's like flipping through um, photographs, and that's the basic unit of film in any case, right? Yeah. And so with um, images in my poetry, there is um, movement throughout the images, and if you flip through, you'll see this movement from young girl to um, um, young woman, and you'll see the trajectory of the ways in which we have also moved, again, from Vietnam all the way to California. Um, So that was uh, absolutely in my mind that I wanted to to be, feel um, filmic, you know, um, because I see these, each poem as a portrait or an image um, that I wanted to capture. And so to, to, connect them as films do um it is to create a, a story and a narrative about time and space you you know we had a, a storyboard artist come on a high level storyboard artist come on a few weeks ago andy kung and i was thinking about when i was reading uh nothing follows i was like i can just give this book to andy and he could literally just sketch sequences of short films just from this there's no script needed just give it to them and there wouldn't even have to be words or things said. He could create a true storyline for each of the poems that you wrote um, into boards that could uh, in really sequentially tell a story from, from A to Z on each poem. It's beautiful. I thought it was a, a wonderful way to kind of um, think about, for me, because it it's a poetry is a diff- difficult thing for me to kind of understand. But then I was like, all right, well, let me put it in that context. And I was like, oh, this is, now it makes it a lot easier for me to kind of like get through the material and, and see it because it's simple and, and that that worked for me when I when I visualize it that way. Yeah, as vignettes especially, right? Because um, each poem can work as a short story or a succession of short stories. I think that's absolutely apt. And I'm now, glad you picked up on, um, on that. That's what it was going for. <laughs> so uh, that's sort of like the technical um, construction, the structure of it. But now I want to ask you sort of like these details, like your mother. Um, and I don't know how much we can get into it without getting too deep into your privacy, but mm-hmm. your mother coming much later, uh, like two decades later, is not a normal thing for Vietnamese uh, diaspora uh, families. Uh Usually it's the father that's uh, stayed behind in the camps or in, um, re-education camps. So, so it's very rare that I've heard that mothers come later or they just perish in the ocean uh, on the journey. So you don't have mothers uh, coming typically. But having a mother come 20 years later is this one of the few cases. Mm-hmm. Can you share with me like why your mother came so much later? Yeah. No, and the, mm-hmm. after that, like, how did that make you feel when she finally got here and how did you have to reconcile with her presence? Cause you were probably fully formed after that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was 23. Um, 
angry feminist in the making. So it was, it wasn't a great um, union, although, uh, so I'll go back to that uh, later. Um, but what happened was in 1975, because my father was in the army, um, he, we had to leave quickly as many um, military families had to do. We were part of the first wave. He had um, connections with the U.S. government. So we fled um, relatively on uh, relatively in terms of a safe passage compared to other uh, refugees who you know fled by boat or other you know more dangerous means um, in the successive waves of Vietnamese um, immigration. But so we left right before uh, April 30th, 1975. And because it was so hurried, uh, my father, my mother was left behind. Uh, she was in Hue while we left from Saigon. And um, so this is the, the tricky part of memory and truth. Um, because, and, and I'd like to have readers think about how um, stories and words um, make meaning and make memories. So because I was left without a mother since I was three years old, um, I had to rely on pictures, the few that we had, letters to to try to think about her in, in my imagination. Um, and But then also my sister's stories. So a lot of the poems I, I, I talk about in terms of my sisters are that we um, fed each other stories in order to keep the memories of the, our country alive and for me more personally to keep the memories of my mother alive in my imagination because I had no way to access her. So um, the other part of it is that two of my other sisters were left behind too and um, it gets murky as to why my mother stayed there could be many different reasons. Um, but I think that this is not very uncommon with other Vietnamese people in that um, maybe she thought that things would get better, right? Mm. I have a poem in the, um, in the book that talks about uh, why she stayed behind. There could be um, so many reasons. So that, that, was one reason and I think my two sisters stayed with her because they had a certain faith in the government um and so she stayed behind another thing is that I don't think my mother liked to mother um she had 11 children two of them had died one stillborn and then one who died of illness early on um and so by the time she got to me, you know, the youngest, um, perhaps she wasn't as attached. And I don't mean this in a in a critical way. I actually understand, you know, the ambivalent feelings of motherhood. I don't buy into all those romantic notions that um, motherhood is natural or that uh, you naturally love your children. Um, there's some of that that's instinctive, but... Um, for Vietnamese culture, especially, there's this like um, romanticization, I think, of Vietnamese mothering. So I 
part of me believes that perhaps she didn't want to um, continue mothering a whole, you know, brood of kids. Um, and that's, I've reconciled with that. Uh, another part of it is that she and my father were deeply unhappy with each other, right? So when I talk about abuse, the abuse was in Vietnam. That is also what followed us from Vietnam to the U.S. The abuse was physical. It was reinforced by Catholic conventions that she was supposed to just um, bear children throughout most of her life and just bear uh, and endure and bear um, the marriage. I, in my understanding or in my reading of her, um, and I, I think this is a loving reading, um, it's to see her as a woman during the 1930s, during French colonialism, during the war with the Americans, um, just trying to survive. And because of what I know about uh, the history of wars on Vietnamese soil, it makes me very empathetic towards the uh, choices that she's had to make. Um, and so, I, again, I think there's many reasons as to why she stayed. The, on the other hand, my father also was uh, reticent about trying to sponsor her over because he, he, I'm not sure if they liked each other, much less loved each other. Um, and he did it mostly out of obligation. So that 20 year span of uh, not having my mother was very impacting on me. But now that I'm older, I can see the reasons as to why both people um, would have made the choices that they made. Again, another poet that I uh, really admire is Sharon Olds, um, a white woman poet who talks about this moment where her parents, she, she imagines this moment where her parents were, were married and, how, and what was going through their minds at the time. And I, I put myself at that moment just to try to reimagine what love they might have had and then what kind of love might have remained? I just don't think um, it was a very healthy relationship for both. Um, and so fast forward 20 years later, and um, I had no idea who she was when she first came. Um, and like I said, I relied on my sisters. Um, they mothered me, and they also fed me a lot of stories about who she was um, as, uh, as a young woman, um, the kinds of experiences she had. She loved to gamble. She loved to play with money. Um, she loved to just walk around. And um, I have a poem that calls her Bui Dai, just in the most affectionate ways, be because she liked to di lang tang, you know, oh. and just wander around. Um, and she's so she's atypical um, mother in that way. And I wanted to capture that spirit because, um, yeah, it, in Vietnamese literature and films, you know, the mother is often seen as somebody who's just completely committed and devoted mm -hmm. and sacrificial. I just don't see that. And so part of my feminist understanding of who she was 
um, gave her other layers to her personhood that um, made sense to me and made then I was able to make sense of some of her choices. This cultural understanding of motherhood in the Vietnamese culture, mm-hmm. it's very detrimental mm-hmm. because it's expected that the woman is a natural born mother and right. that she's always has her antenna and her heart in the right place. And the description that you're you're giving, uh, the empathy that you're giving your mother for Lang Tang, Budai, all of these um, adjectives are beautiful. But when I think about my experience with men who are my age, my brother, Kwa, all the people that are, you know, there's a, a sort of toxicity that has come as a result of having mothers come to us prepackaged this way culturally. Mm. So my mother thinks that her way of being a mother is the best way, which is the traditional way, which mm-hmm. she seems to have some sort of natural ability to behave that way, right? Or program. She thinks that that's, and for the most part, I think she's kind of in line with that way. But now here's the problem. Mm-hmm. We're living in America and I'm a grown ass man and I give no agency to my girlfriend, my mm-hmm. wife, my ex-wife, my mm-hmm lovers to be something that's not that so that's put on me to expect that and it's weird because it's a mother it's a it's a mother a woman that's doing that to a a man and it's created all kinds of problems in my life that i've recently began to with the help of uh, a lot of women in my circles start to see the women who are unseen because my mom has cloaked and I, I don't blame her i have empathy for her the same way you have empathy for your mother in these yeah. ways as well but it's it's I, it's something that i wanted to call out because um in the last few years i've i've experienced a lot of when i think about it like expectations i have on women and i'm like where where does this come from yeah and now hearing you uh talk about this uh it, it triggers this response about my own mother and this idea of perfection and right. i expect it with women and it's so it's taking me probably another 20 years to to deprogram this uh, hot mess right our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of noom they build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions medical issues and other personal needs so your plan works for you Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Well, um, 
So I, I identify um, most as a feminist, and I, I say that so that um, your re- uh, listeners can know that when I say when when I talk about feminism, it's not just about um, women or females or those who you know identify as LGBTQ or non-binary, but it's also to include men, and it's like. Um, feminism is a bad word, I think, in American culture because it's seen as men hating. But really, it um, with this kind of perspective, I can see. Sorry, how um, how gender roles um, are uh, are made, like constructed, and socially they're socially constructed, right? And so this is not natural. This is not organic. And but the the ways that the gendered constructions um, that you witness in the, your family life and then outside in culture, that they have an impact in the shaping of not just women, but of men. And so when you know you're you're processing that um, and you're processing the ways in which you were um, raised to be again, through your, um, through notions of what it means to be a man, a father, a husband, a partner, a lover, um, that was um, cultivated through your parents. And, um, and, and so gendered expectations come into play, your ideal, perhaps uh, notion of womanhood sits very closely to um, what your uh, mother has done for her children and her husband. But those kinds of constructions, uh, I hope you see, are not narratives, are not enduring narratives that uh, you have to buy into. You could break them off. Uh, You could reconstruct them for yourself and for your kids, which I think is so important, so that they don't relearn all those um, ideas that we have about what is ideal ideal femininity or ideal masculinity. Um, So if I am raising my daughter who's to be a feminist, I also want to raise my son right. to be a feminist and to understand, um, again, that these narratives are completely socially constructed and that they and that we have the power and the agency to change those narratives about who we are and how we relate to others. I had an experience with my mom recently where gender and this cultural sort of it, intersected where uh, we were driving and my daughter is half Taiwanese, half Vietnamese. And we were, I was saying, Hey, when we get home, we're going to watch some Vietnamese videos to learn Vietnamese. And she's like, no, 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 I'm not Vietnamese. I'm Chinese. And then um, I said, well, you know, uh, daddy and and Vanoi are Vietnamese. So, you know, we're, uh, you know, Vietnamese Chinese. And she was, no, I'm Chinese. No, I'm Chinese. And then my mother said, no, correct her. Tell mm-hmm. her you're, you're Vietnamese first, then Chinese. And I was like, why? She's like, because you're a man, and the man leads culturally. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that I caught. I caught myself. I caught her. And I mm-hmm. said, Mom, that's that's not what I'm going to tell my daughter or my son. That's just wrong to do that. So, yeah. But I still haven't had a way to, to think through this. So I would love to hear what your thoughts on yeah. how to kind of like reframe this to my mom. 
Wow. I think that's a really powerful moment where you realize, um, again, the, that pressure to be a certain way. And then the pressure then uh, relates to your your children. And I think you're absolutely right to push back. I'm just not sure if it's, so it's subjective. I'm not sure if it's worth the effort to uh, reframe it to your mother who has, who, who is, who has been ingrained with these ideas for so long, um, but rather to um, put in the effort of talking it through with your children um, who will, who I think would be better um, served mm. by these kinds of discussions. I just know that, for example, my mother and my father, um, they're too old to have this whole different ideological reframing. Um, and I don't blame them because, you know, they had really harsh um, upbringings, right? And so, um, but I think that having the instinct and the inspiration to do better for your children um, is part of um, is part of the process to recognize that um, for your mother it really depends on whether or not you want to choose your battles because you know our relationships to our parents are complex sometimes very precarious because they are almost different species because yeah. their experiences are so different from from who we are um and and yet the ties are so strong um, because I still um, think of myself very much as Vietnamese refugee very tied to um, my family um so sorry about that Um, so, yeah, uh, when I then am with my parents, I have to think, what is a battle that I can um, win at this moment in time? Um, and it used to be a, a battle about talking about anti-communism and communism. Um, it, and because of his experiences, we never saw mm. eye to eye. Yeah, He always used to tell me don't get um, um, caught up in those politics. Um, I, and to this day, he thinks um, that my work, for example, is um, a celebration of Vietnamese culture, of the community. Uh, when it's not, it's very critical of the Vietnamese American community, but it's also critical of the Vietnamese state. Um, but it, those kinds of nuances are so hard to translate and express. This is all to say, Ken, that um, it really is subjective as to uh, what you want to push back on with your mom at what moment. Was it a good time? Was it good timing to, you know, hash this out? Well, um, I, you know, I, I want to say that my mom's very open and she is welcoming of a new way. I just didn't have the answer. And I'm at, that's why I'm here asking you, like, how do I respond to to this uh because I actually brought it up at a dinner party too. And mm. there was a white, I mean, we're all Vietnamese and there's a white woman in, and she was like, what's the, what's the big deal? We're a melting pot. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, there were so many things around this uh, thing before we even 
uh, move on. I, I just want to like load up another question because I might, I might forget it, which is, uh, I wonder what your children are thinking of, our children are thinking of us uh, one day. Do you think that they're thinking that these people are old and they don't have paradigm shifting abilities? So that's like the second question that <laughs> someone I, I get, say again. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, I still, because it's so important for me to um, express how, um, uh, not powerful, but how strong these figures are, my parental figures are. They shaped me, they shaped our history, and I want my kids to respect that, you know. Um, But but they are also American, um, and they are living in the U.S., and so they're probably imbibing a lot of different ideas. And so I think it's up to us to talk through with them um, the, all these different contradictions and uh, have them think very complexly about um, the complexities of our upbringing, the complexities of their grandparents, and even the complexity of who we are as Vietnamese Americans. This is all to say that I believe in discussing, I believe in talking. Yeah. Um, um, we're open books at home, both Viet and I, and we talked to Ellison, for example, who's going to be 10 soon, about everything from genocide to war to Trump to, um, you know, racism. Um, so nothing difficult uh, is um, is off the table. Um, but it sounds like you don't have a contentious relationship with your mother. I just assumed you did. Right. I don't. don't. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did yeah. in the early days. Uh, but we, my brother and I broke both. I mean, literally, we would not stop trying to break, like, people breaking horses. I know that's not a politically correct thing to say anymore. Like, we we shouldn't be breaking anybody or breaking horses. Right. But at the same time, when my dad and mom opened their mouth and talked about Catholicism. Mm-hmm. We, we, they were trying to break us and we, it was a war. It was a war in my house. And that was the, the main battles were religion. Uh, everything else they didn't care about academics, money. They didn't care about status. It was about, everything was about ideology uh, and religion. So yeah. when it comes to this cultural uh, and gender sort of discussions, she's very, she's very open and she's like, well, what do you like? How should I go about what? And here I am. I'm like, well, I don't know because I don't, I don't care one way or the other, but it's an interesting thing to talk about. Do we mm-hmm. call her uh, Taiwanese Vietnamese or Vietnamese Taiwanese? Or according to the white woman that was at the party, it was like, why do you even, care? she even said, it, why do you even care? You know, why do you even care? Why, uh, because we're all melting pot. Nobody, you know, you shouldn't even, and yeah, here we are. Yeah, here we are. So that kind of like liberal American perspective uh, is uh, woven into the fabric, the political fabric of um, U.S. uh, society in that, you know, every immigrant who comes here is contributing um, to the, to this melting pot. And it's, it's very reassuring, I think, to other white liberal Americans uh, that everybody, uh, that the U.S. is made up of uh, immigrants or or other communities and everybody's like um, 
has a chance, the opportunity to succeed and make something of themselves. So that kind of idea, um, I think we have to push back against because um, the, and I, I'm trying to figure out what your mom means by saying she's Vietnamese and that you have to assert that as, as, um, uh, the power that's vested in you because you're the male the man yeah. counterpart in your relationship. So the reason why it's important though, is because, you know, um, the relationship between Vietnam and China has always been vexed, right? It's a, his, yeah. a thousand year history of colonialism. Um, and, um, be, and because of that, um, I think that's why she wants you to assert that uh, your daughter is Vietnamese first, although it is Taiwan um, and not China. Right. But I think in the uh, minds of the Vietnamese and the Vietnamese diaspora, you, there's enough of a relationship there to say that it's um, they're they're against China in some ways. So, but another part of that is is that perhaps. Um, there is a kind of uh, ethnic discrimination going on, you know, um, in from your mother's point of view, because ethnic minorities um, have been historically discriminated against. And, you know, with the ethnic Chinese, like um, our friend Ham and other um, and other people um, who we know, their families had to leave um, in the wake of um, the communist takeover because they were persecuted um, for being ethnic Chinese, for for being merchants, and um, rather than uh, you know socialist um, collective um, citizens, right? So there is an ingrained sense of uh, discrimination, I think. That's all, that's also at play here. I'm calling out your mom in so many ways, but um, I'm hoping you see you see that it's not personal. It's more like my read of the ways in which the Vietnamese have. No, for sure, I completely understand that. Yeah, as the Gin majority, and everybody else is not, um, you know, um, dominant enough. Um, okay, so then, um, how I would have replied to this white woman is that, you know, there's a history of these kinds of intra-ethnic intra conflicts and discrimination that precedes um, your mom's comment about asserting your identity as Vietnamese first and everything else is, is second. Um, but even so, like, for example, um, we call ourselves Vietnamese American, right? So um, the Vietnamese would be the adjective part and the American would be the, mm, the subject, course, right? right? So here no, I think it that. would yeah. be the same way. If you were to call yourself Vietnamese, Taiwanese, um, perhaps, then your mother doesn't see that the Taiwanese is the subject. And the Vietnamese, even though it's first, is the descriptive. So it's the qualifier. Um, but in any case, it it's semantics and um, but I'm proud that your your daughter has the um, the has the ability to assert her identity um, in the way that she articulated 
Um, and she sees herself in this way. So I, if, if it were me, I would go with however she identifies. Oh, wow. Right? Wonderful. And, That's and a great it answer. It could also shift. Like, for yeah. example, if your daughter were to go to Vietnam, she would see herself as Vietnamese or and then they would call her Vic Q. Um, and or if she were to go to Europe, she would be seen as American. So there's all these different ways in which identity um, is shaped by context and, and not always um, related to um, a core identity that your mother seems to ins uh, insist on. Lan, that that is such a wise um, perspective and, and explanation mm -hmm. because I asked her, why do you see yourself as Chinese? And I thought that she would say, oh, my grandmother or my mom said so or whatever. But she said, no, there's just all the Chinese kids in my class. There's all, everybody's Chinese and I'm part of that class. Yeah. And it's so in South Pasadena, you know, it's a bunch of majority are Chinese. It's ironic that, you know, so that answer is so perfect. Uh, your answer to me, your response to me saying, you know, let her identify whatever she wants to identify. Because ultimately, why are we so married to to this but this is part of the discussion mm -hmm. at the vietnamese podcast is this very openness to to look at different ways and different modes of identifying ourselves right and that also relates to the question of masculinity so masculinity is not an enduring construct um your your mother implies that she, you have to insist uh, on your daughter's identity because you're a man and men are stronger. Um, but I have to say that, you know, if you yourself, even though you're a grown ass man, you don't feel like you have to assert that kind of authority um, all the time or most of the time or some of the time, I think you can push back by saying, you know, um, that your partner is a true partner in the sense that both of you are working on shaping your children's identities and that your identity as a person who identifies as man and masculine um it also shifts and, and things are in flux and thank goodness because that's emotional and intellectual growth and maturity if we don't see ourselves as not changing or evolving so that's what I would do in both situations. <laughs> Long answer to a very No, this is beautifully drawn out. It is uh, awesome because uh, I, I learned the last 20 minutes so much about how I should be approaching these uh, future questions that my children and my, one of my cousins asked me, actually, why do you even do this? Like, there's no money in what you do. And uh, I said, because I've grown so much as just a human being in the last two years, two and a half years of asking questions from the brightest people in our community. And it just, you know, just having you uh, explain this very uh, topic, um, it, it was it's so simple, but I didn't, I can't sit here and think about the answers going forward, but now I am armed, <laughs> I hate to use that word. <laughs> Um, that is not an appropriate word, but uh, I, I have the the um, uh, some answers now. Tools. Some tools. <laughs>
to, to, to do this. I look forward um, to seeing you and, and Viet tomorrow. Um, is there anything more that we can discuss about uh, Nothing Follows? Other than that, everybody should uh, go pick up a copy. And where can they pick up a copy? And where can they find links to the, uh, to the book? Sure. So if you go to my website, um, you'll see um, a buy the book option. Wait, can you say that again? Uh, it just cut out. Oh, sorry. So if you go to www.langyung.com, you'll see a buy the book uh, option and you could buy through the website or just go to Amazon or bookshop. Amazon is, um, you know, there's a lot of books available there. Um, I would also encourage folks to um, come and hear me read um, because I think poetry has to also be heard. Uh, it's such an oral form. Um, and that's where the, the, the magic happens is yeah. when you hear and um, you see it performed. I think that's um, really part of the beauty of poetry. Um, so check out where I'll be reading. Uh, I have events coming up in San Jose. Um, but I think the best place is the Viet Book Fest or the Viet Book Fair coming up tomorrow. Um, it'll be a whole smorgasbord of authors who are coming to celebrate Vietnamese American literature. You'll hear from so many different voices. And, you know, in terms of Vietnamese Americans and literature, we are kicking ass right now. And I just invite you to celebrate in the ways in which um, these writers, myself included, were trying to change the narrative about who we are and talk about who can speak for us and take back our uh, stories, our images, our archives in order to put together a history and a story that belongs to us. One last question. Uh, what you just said uh, reminded me of a discussion I had two nights ago Somebody asked me on a podcast or a recap, why is it that in a lot of the fields creatively, why is it that authors um, are kicking ass out there right now, Vietnamese authors, and not like, why are the musicians, film, or why is it that authors are having their time and day right now? I know. I think it's a great question. Um, my hunch is that... Um, there are, you know, writers like uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, Ocean Vuong, who have really um, kicked down the barriers for, uh, I'm, I'm going to say it, a white literary elite to appreciate the art and the craft and the form of, uh, in terms of talking about the about Vietnamese people. Um, and I think it was that um, it took some time uh, for that to be really cultivated. And um, I know that for Viet's part, what he tries to do is he also pulls other people up, right? And endorses blurbs, uh, contributes to anthologies. In so doing, the literature is, um, is more visible. And there is uh, all these structures in place already, mm. given the fact that Asian Americans, um, Asian American writers have already kind of, you know, set this pathway for Vietnamese Americans 
um, that have allowed us to uh, reach a certain pinnacle when it comes to Vietnamese American literature um, now being folded into uh, an American literary canon. This is very different from Vietnamese American films or Vietnamese diasporic filmmakers who are making films. And I think about this all the time. Um, and that is because of the economics of the film industry, right? It's much more um, expensive to make films. It's much more collaborative in uh, US um, artistic cultures. You know, there is a way in which the author or the writer, the poet is fetishized because the individual is the most important in, in the ways in which we think about art. But within film, because it's collaborative, because it involves so much um, partnerships in terms of getting money, working with actors, working with producers, again, it's, it's, um, it's hard to celebrate that because um, this, the, the, the person, the one person which the literary elites um, tend to celebrate one at a time, right? Like the flavor of the month kind of thing. Um, the a whole film collective is harder to uh, celebrate. Um, the other part of this is that Vietnamese state politics are so restrictive and repressive when it comes to Vietnamese diasporic filmmakers making the kinds of films that I think could really be impactful. Um, that they're really strangling mm. their own cultural industry. And, but so with, for example, Chan and Hong, um, Pot de Feu, it won the Cannes uh, Award. And I'm, you know, so happy for him. But it's because he's able to make films of that caliber outside of Vietnam. So it's for many different reasons then that I think filmmakers. Um, are having a harder time getting recognized for the work that they do versus um, literary folks, you know, and it, uh, again, um, it, this just means that we as communities, um, as a community, we really need to support the arts in all different aspects of how we produce culture. Lan. Thank you so much. Uh, I've learned so much and, and I've broken down this barrier of, of the fear of poetry. Uh, thanks to Nothing Follows. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Ken. And I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. I also look forward to having uh, other conversations with you. It's been my pleasure. Oh, thank you, Lynn. All right. See you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.